at 9 p.m. on BBC One tonight, the final ever episode of Happy Valley will be shown. Emmy and I are very excited about this. I hope some of you have been watching this drama. It's excellent BBC drama at its best. Happy Valley is a gritty northern crime story. The Halifax police are chasing a gang of villains. But it is also so much more than that. At its heart, it is asking a very important ethical question. Who are we as human beings? The key character in all of this is a teenager called Ryan. Ryan's father is a serious criminal. He's been in prison most of Ryan's life for committing some heinous crimes and he's never shown any sign of remorse. Ryan's mother died shortly after Ryan was born, so Ryan has been brought up by his maternal grandmother and aunt. His grandmother is the star of the show. She is the police sergeant, the upholder of the law and all good moral values. Ryan's aunt is a gentle, caring, empathetic woman who always looks for the best in people and gives them a second chance. She has loved Ryan all his life. So the key question of the whole show is now this. Who is Ryan? Is he the product of his genes? Is he his father's son, destined for a life of trouble and crime? He certainly had difficulty at school. Or is Ryan the product of the people who brought him up? Has he been shaped enough by his grandmother and his aunt to overcome the genetic code that was handed down to him? It's the old nature-nurture debate. Who are we as human beings? What has the biggest influence on us as we develop? And tonight we will finally see that question resolved. For Ryan's dad has escaped from prison and he's called Ryan to come and join him. Ryan has long wanted to be close to his father, to know more about him. So this is a very tempting offer. <coughs> but his family have done everything they can to warn Ryan off. Indeed, his grandmother is determined to rearrest Ryan's father before he commits another crime. What will Ryan choose? Will he follow his genetics? Or will he follow the character of his family and choose to do good? Emily and I cannot wait to find out. Just who is Ryan? All of us as human beings want to know the answer to the same question. At a deep primal level, we want to know who we are, where we come from, where we belong. We want to know what sets us apart, what gives us purpose. Is there anything that makes us special? And these questions affect us personally. The answers lead us to forming our sense of identity, our sense of self-esteem. They affect our daily mental well-being. Who am I? What is my worth? Why am I the way that I am? 
The answer to these questions is also very important because what we believe about human beings and human nature also determines about how we behave towards others. And that is true for life in the village on Isla. What we believe about human beings will define how we treat our neighbours. And it's true for the global issues that we see every day on the news. The question of who we are as human beings comes into the issue of racism, the rise of nationalism. It's the touchstone for medical ethics, issues like abortion and euthanasia and gender. It's at the heart of campaigns for justice and people deserving a fair wage. All of these issues come back to the question, who am I? And who is my human neighbour? Now these questions are so fundamental that human beings have been grappling with them for centuries. And in our reading, we found Paul exploring this issue nigh on 2,000 years ago. Romans 7 is all about human identity. Who are we? Why are we the way that we are? Are we essentially good or are we essentially bad? And can we change? By reading Romans 7, we come to see what Christians believe about ourselves as human beings and the great effect for good that Jesus and the Holy Spirit can have upon us. Now, I don't know if you will have ever heard those verses before, but what you will have immediately noticed on hearing them is that there is a great tussle going on. In Paul's lived-out experience, there is a striving, a conflict, a war raging within him. It's the struggle between good and bad, glory and shame. You see, there's something of the Jekyll and Hyde about human nature. There is glory there, and that glory comes from being made in the image of God. But there is also shame as well. Shame that arises from our own sinfulness. And we're going to delve into this conflict with Paul in the attempt to answer the important question. Not who is Ryan, but who am I? I want us to start with the positive, for that is where God would want us to start. The positive always defines us more than the negative. Human beings are essentially good In fact, more than that, there is something about human nature that is truly glorious. In his famous play, Hamlet, in Act 2, Scene 2, Shakespeare wrote this about human beings. What a piece of work is man. How noble in reason, how infinite in faculty, in form and moving, how express and admirable in action, how like an angel, in apprehension, how like a god. (coughs) The beauty of the world, the paragon of the animals. Of course, all that applies just as equally to women as it does to men. What a glorious depiction of human beings that is. What incredibly high praise. It's so effusive, we almost naturally want to doubt it. It may surprise us then to discover that that is actually very biblical. In Psalm 8, verses 3 to 6, we find equally exalted language. 
When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon, the stars which you have set in place, what is mankind that you are mindful of them, human beings that you care for them? You've made them a little lower than the angels. You've crowned them with glory and honour. You've made them rulers over the work of your hands. You've put everything under their feet. I really want to make sure that we hear this today. The Bible affirms that there is something special, precious, indeed priceless about every human life. There is a glory deep within each and every one of us. And that is true regardless of who our parents were, regardless of the conditions we were brought up in. It is true for Ryan, and it is true for you, and it is true for me. But where does that glory come from? Well, the Bible couldn't be any clearer. The glory comes from God, our creator. The Bible tells us that God didn't need to make us. But he chose in love to sculpt our lives into being. And God remains pleased with that choice. It tells us that day by day he rejoices over us with singing. I don't know what your childhood was like. I don't know how your parents made you feel about yourself. But in God's eyes, you are a wanted child. A much wanted and treasured child but the bible goes further than even this it tells us that when god did bring us into being he made us to be in his image listen to these important words from the first chapter of the bible genesis 1 26 to 28 then god said let us make mankind in our image in our likeness so they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature on the ground. What does it mean to be made in God's image? Well, even from a rudimentary understanding of the word image... We can tell that it means in some way we are to be like God. We represent God. But in what ways more specifically? I'd like us to focus briefly on four. First of all, we reflect God in terms of personality. In the Bible, God is revealed to us as a he, not an it. God is a person. Not a faceless force or energy. God is not an it. And therefore, if we're made in his image, we can never be reduced to an it either. We are people, not machines. We have a unique personality and we want to be loved and respected for it. We want our individuality to be taken seriously. And honestly, as soon as we start to look on another human being as an it... Rather than a he or a she, they're in serious trouble because we will have no care for them. They're just an object, a figure, a statistic. That's how Putin and his war criminals look upon the people of Ukraine. But we are made in the image of God. We are not an it. We are a person. Second, the image of God is seen in our relationships. 
Last week we focused on that interesting verse where God says, let us make mankind in our image. And we saw there a sign of the Trinity. God is one but three and the Father was talking to the Son and the Spirit there. Let us make mankind in our image. We thought last week about how the very being of God is a constant communion of loving relationships between the Father, the Son and the Spirit. And the image of God is therefore seen in the way that we relate to others, particularly the way men and women relate to each other. I would go as far as to say that the clearest image that a young child will ever get of God is in a good marriage between their mother and their father. But the image of God is not just expressed in marriage, it's also found in our friendships and our loving relationships. As human beings, we display the image of God when we show compassion and empathy and companionship. God made us to relate to him and relate to others. That's what it means to be in the image of God, and it is glorious. Thirdly, the image of God can be found within our purpose as human beings. In those verses from Genesis, we got a very clear task, didn't we? We're to look after God's world, to look after his creation, and be creative ourselves. We're to be fruitful and to multiply. And that doesn't just relate to the bedroom department. We are made in the image of God. And therefore, every creative act we do resembles him and brings glory to his name. It's because we're made in God's image that we create in the fields of art and music, literature, science, technology, cooking, sport, gardening, and many more. Every human life can create something, and that should be celebrated. And finally, the image of God can be seen in our sense of morality. The Bible tells us that God is good. And he's planted this goodness deep within us as human beings. And every single one of us is capable of distinguishing between right and wrong. And we speak of this awareness of us having a conscience. We know that it's wrong to steal and to lie, to hurt, to deceive. From a very young child, we have this inbuilt sense of justice and fair play. And this is because we're made in God's image. And we see this playing out in great detail in Romans 7. Because Paul clearly says that he knows what is good. In fact, more than that, he knows what is good and he really wants to do it. But here then comes the problem. Because despite having this inbuilt moral compass that guides us towards the image of God, Paul doesn't always manage to follow it. Listen again to verses 18 to 19. For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. I do not do the good that I want to do. But the evil that I don't want to do, this I keep on doing. Sadly, Paul knows that so often in his life he falls short and he cannot achieve the good that he wants to. So yes, we've spent the last five minutes extolling the glory of human beings. We're we're personal and we're loving and we're creative and we're justice seeking. And yet, a shadow side is still present. 
in each and every one of us. There is another part of our character that we haven't explored yet. There is a shame hiding amongst the glory. <coughs> and the truth of the matter is this, as a human being, I constantly feel drawn towards self-centeredness. And I know this myself, deep down, I, Andrew Burnham, want to be the centre of attention. And it's this desire that is leading Ryan in Happy Valley to, to leave his grandmother and his aunt and join with his terrible father. He wants to be the centre of his father's attention. It's the desire found in every one of us. Liverpudlian singer Black once wrote a song, Let's Talk About Me. And in it are these lyrics. We don't care what you've got to say. We don't hear when you cry out. All our smiles are hollowed out. Let's talk about me. Let's talk about me. Why on earth do even the best of us behave like this? Even those who initially set out to do so much good in their lives. Well, the Bible says it's because of sin. Romans 7.20, Paul says, Now if I do not do what I want to do, it's no longer I who do it, but it is sin living in me that does it. You see, the Bible describes sin like a disease. A disease that informs our behaviour. It's the I disease, the selfish disease. And it's deep within each and every one of us. Just listen to how Jesus describes the symptoms of this disease in Mark 7. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, listen to me everyone, understand this. Nothing outside of a person going into them defiles them. Rather it's what comes out of them that defiles them. For it's from within, out of a person's heart, that evil thoughts come. Sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, greed, malice, deceit, lewdness, envy, slander, arrogance, folly. All these evils come from inside and defile a person. The Bible says that sin affects all of us. It, it robs us. Of that glory that we've been thinking of. The glory that comes from us being made in God's image. (coughs) Romans 3, 23. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Wayne Gruden helpfully described the effect of sin in these terms. Since man has sinned, he is certainly not as fully like God as he was before. His moral purity has been lost and his sinful character certainly does not reflect God's holiness. His intellect is corrupted by falsehood and misunderstanding. His speech no longer continually glorifies God. His relationships are often governed by selfishness rather than love and so forth. Though man is still in the image of God, in every respect of life, some parts of that image have been distorted. Or lost. And I think that quote is so helpful. When God looks at us. He sees his children. He sees his image bearers. And he deeply loves us. No matter how scarred a human life. There is still great potential there. 
Yet through sin, something precious has been lost. From our very first sin, which we were fully responsible for, we we can't blame anybody else for it, we have become defiled. We have been imprisoned by sin. We're defiled because in some way we're now unclean and, and somehow cut off from the holy God. Indeed, we carry such regret and, and such damaged relationships in our lives, we're cut off from each other and from ourselves. And we're in prison because sin is so highly addictive. It's like crack cocaine and more. It's so addictive that from one instance, it comes to take power over our lives. We keep doing it, even when we don't want to keep doing it. And we hear the pain and the frustration of this in Paul's words. Verses 14 and 15. We know that the law is spiritual, but I'm unspiritual, sold as a slave to sin. I don't understand what I do. For what I want to do, I do not do. But what I hate, I do. Paul feels enslaved by sin and he experiences it like an agony within him. And all human beings know this frustration. We all carry a sense of shame and guilt about things in our past and the way we are now. And if we truly take the time to think and stop running and hiding from our consciences, we will recognize that this is true for us. So this leads us to a sobering conclusion. We set out to answer the question, who are we as human beings? What makes us as we are? What forms us? Is it nature? Is it nurture? Is it both? Well, the Bible says that humans are essentially glorious and good. Every one of us is of value. We have great potential. In monetary terms, we are priceless because we're formed in God's image. And yet we can never make a complete conclusion about God by looking at a human being as they currently are. Because every one of us is broken in some way. We've been damaged. God's image has been distorted in us. None of us are perfect. None of us can be all that we really want to be. And it's for this reason that surely we should never judge another person because we share in the same shame. And it's for this reason that surely we should let people have a second chance because we need one ourselves. And it's with that thought that we'll briefly finish. Because having expressed his frustrations at the predicament of human beings, in Romans 7, Paul cries out on behalf of each and every person. He he cries out on behalf of you and me. And he says in verse 24, What a wretched man I am! Who will rescue me from this body that is subject to death? And the answer comes in the very next verse. Thanks be to God who delivers me through Jesus Christ our Lord. Paul has discovered that Jesus saves us from our sinfulness. He restores the image of God within us. How does that work? Well, it works like this. Jesus is fully God. 
Yet when he came to earth, he lived as a fully human being. He was the word made flesh, as John wrote, or as Paul would write in Colossians. He was the full and perfect image of God. And in Paul's perfect humanity, sorry, in Jesus' perfect humanity, he did not fail. He did not sin. He conquered that temptation of selfishness. So Jesus is the perfect image of God. He is the fulfillment of everything God intended human beings to be. And when Jesus died on the cross, he laid down that perfect life. And he gave it to you and to me. In Corinthians 5, 2 Corinthians 5, it says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's the moment of great exchange. That Jesus bore the consequences of our sin so that we don't have to. And in doing so, God broke this downward spiral of, of sin and rebellion and shame. And the reason that God purified us at the cross was then that he could place his Holy Spirit within us. And the Spirit is now at work in the lives of all those who believe in Jesus, transforming us from the inside out. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says this, We who with unveiled faces contemplate the Lord's glory, we are being transformed into his image with ever-increasing glory that comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. This is a lifelong process. As we worship God, as we give thanks for the cross, as we strive to follow Jesus, our characters are changed. It's frustratingly slow at times, but the promise is that one day it will be complete. In 1 John 3, it says this, Dear friends, now we are children of God. What we will be has not yet been made known, but when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. This is the incredible news. This is the, this is the great narrative arc of the Bible. This is the story of the human condition. It's a story of glory to shame, back to glory again. And it's only possible through Jesus. Through Jesus we can shed the shame and reclaim the true glory that God made us to have. So let me wrap everything up. We've been asking a very important question. Who am I? And we found a very honest answer. In truth, I'm a bit of a battlefield. A bit of a Jekyll and Hyde. I'm at once good and bad. I'm glorious, but shameful. And knowing that truth is the first step to understanding who we are and who we can become. And the second step is letting Jesus take the shame and give us his glory. That is the way that we sort ourselves out. That's true for me and it's true for you. And we're going to ask Jesus to continue that work now in prayer. Let us pray.